Uh, currently, uh, Stephen Norwood is a professor of history at the University of uh, Oklahoma. He's also a member of the Academic Council of the David Wyman Institute uh, for Holocaust Studies in Boston. He received his PhD from Columbia University. His research focuses on 20th century American social history, working class history, as well as women's history, Jewish history, and African American history, and also the history of education in the United States. He's, um, he's written widely, uh, has published widely on uh, issues, and he's been featured, um, his work has been featured all over the world, including published and uh, featured in Turkey, India, Israel, New Zealand, and uh, beyond. He's worked as a consultant in the media uh, for CBS television in New York, and as well as CNN. His most recent book is The Third Reich in the Ivory Tower, Complicity and Conflict on American Campuses. Um, he's the editor of a new book, which was just, uh, which will be coming out shortly, or no, it was published, sorry, the new volume, volume two, what encyclopedia, encyclopedia? Uh, yeah, two volumes. Two volumes. Two volumes. Um, that was 2008. From 2008, uh, called the Encyclopedia of American Jewish History, which won the Booklist Editor's Choice Award, um, and it is co-authored with uh, Professor Norwood's wife, uh, Eunice uh, Pollock, who's here with us, who's an honor that she's here, and she's also publishing a book which will come out shortly on issues of anti-Semitism, a collected essay, a volume of essays that will be published within the year. It'll be published within two months. Within two and months. And just on the campus, past and present, then it's on the U.S. campus, Britain's campus, South Africa, blah, blah. It's going to be an important book with uh, contributions from leading scholars. Um, and also, uh, Professor Norwood has received the Hubert Gutman Award in American Social History for, for the book Labor's Flaming Youth, Telephone Operators and Worker Militancy from 1878 to 1923. So it's an honor that you're here, and thank you for coming. Okay. Well, uh, during the 1930s, America's leading colleges and universities forged friendly ties with thoroughly Nazi-fied universities in Germany. <clears throat> and by doing so, they helped enhance the Hitler regime's prestige in the West. Many American universities warmly welcomed top Nazi officials to campus, where they enthusiastically praised the Third Reich. Administrators refused to criticize them, despite calls from the Jewish community and from some students to do so. Prominent American academics were flattered to have the Nazi government bestow an honorary degree on them. The nation's leading universities eagerly participated in well-orchestrated Nazi propaganda festivals organized by the Hitler regime at German universities. Until World War II began, American colleges and universities enthusiastically participated in student exchange programs with Germany's Nazi-fied universities, which had expelled their Jewish faculty members. From the beginning of Nazi rule, on January 30, 1933, many American and British journalists reported that the Hitler regime was far more oppressive than anything that the world had ever seen. The American Jewish press immediately called Hitler the new Haman. As everyone knew, Haman had tried to destroy the Jewish people. So this issue of extermination comes right to the fore uh, in the spring of 1933. The American Jewish press is on to this, and, and uh, a lot of mainstream journalists in the US and Britain are also talking about the possibility of mass extermination in Germany. 
Only a few weeks after the Nazis came to power, the New York Times reported that American travelers returning from Germany were emphasizing that, quote, to be either of Jewish faith or origin in Germany now constituted a crime, unquote. And Britain's Manchester Guardian stated in April 1933 that, quote, in city after city, in village after village, there was such an abundance of barbarism that modern analogies fail. The same month, a New York Times correspondent wrote from Germany that the Jews there were like toads under the harrow. Journalists reported that the Nazis delighted in publicly humiliating Jews, parading them through towns in refuse carts, and imprisoning them in pigsties. Bad news is, is uh, being published in the United States in the spring of 1933. On April 1st, 1933, the Nazis signaled their intention of economically strangling the Jewish population by staging a one-day national boycott of Jewish stores. Many saw this as the first step toward extermination. Particularly frightening was the yellow circle that the Nazis placed above the entrances to Jewish stores, the old medieval badge of shame for the Jews. And journalists are talking about a, a regression already to medieval times, and in fact to the Dark Ages, which is what I call the first uh, chapter in my book, uh, Germany Reverts to the Dark Ages. Uh, the boycott of Jewish stores and offices was almost immediately followed by the expulsion of Jews from the professions and from university faculties. And, and it's quite clear the Nazis saw the university as central uh, in their effort uh, uh, to persecute the Jews. So that this is a critical institution for them to control, and they do so immediately. In May 1933, Germany's National Student Organization conducted massive book burnings of what it called un-German books at universities across the Reich. The Nazis cast into the flames many of the world's greatest works of scholarship and literature. The book burnings and the expulsion of Jewish faculty dramatically underlined the termination of genuine higher education in Germany. In the West, some of those reading of the German bonfires undoubtedly recall Heinrich Heine's prescient warning more than a century before, where books are burned, in the end, people will be burned too. This is exactly what happened. Many Western observers noted the sharp deterioration in academic standards in Germany's universities under the Nazis. America's ambassador to Germany, William Dodd, was so sick by the damage the Nazis inflicted on higher education that he dreaded even passing through a German university town. And he refused to accept any honorary degree from a German university. So there's an example of someone who, who was very clear uh, uh, that uh, this was a, a barbaric regime. He wouldn't have anything to do with the German university. A sharp contrast to many of the leaders of uh, America's universities during the 1930s. The Nazi's terrorist campaign against the Jews and assault on academic freedom uh, is widely reported in the American press. And yet, America's university elite, capable of influencing public opinion against Nazi barbarism, chose not to do so. Uh, the president of Yale, James Rowland Angel, uh, for example, refused the request of Rabbi Edgar Siskin to speak at a mass meeting in New Haven on March 27, 1933, which is the first day of nationwide protests in the United States against Nazi anti-Semitism, where, where, where there, there are huge numbers of Jews going into the streets in the major American metropoli uh, demonstrating against Nazi anti-Semitism. Local rabbi here in New Haven asked the president of Yale 
to participate in uh, a, a protest meeting, and he refused, telling the rabbi uh, 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 that uh, uh, he uh, just uh, flatly declined. The rabbi was deeply important, disappointed that uh, President Angel declined the invitation, telling him, quote, your presence with us would have added greatly to the effect of our protest. Instead of backing the anti-Nazi protest, the nation's educational leaders engaged in numerous actions that enhanced Nazi prestige in the West as Germany intensified its persecution of Jews and strengthened its armed forces. This reprehensible behavior, of course shaped by the anti-Semitism that pervaded America's university elite during the 1930s. America's universities sharply restricted Jewish enrollment all the way through the Holocaust. University presidents often made anti-Semitic remarks in their correspondence, uh, looking through President James Conant's papers at Harvard. Uh, I found him uh, uh, corresponding with the DuPont Corporation, who was a prominent chemist himself, at German-Jewish refugee scientist, Max Bergman. Uh, uh, they were interested in possibly hiring him for consulting work, but were concerned about the fact that he might be, quote, too Jewish, and encouraging things about his you know, kind of Jewish nature. Uh, the president of Harvard responded to Dukart, recommending against hiring Bergman, uh, emphasizing that he was, quote, very definitely of the Jewish type, unquote. When Bergman died 10 years later, the New York Times identified him as one of the world's leading organic chemists. While America's university leaders largely failed to react in any significant way to the onset of Nazi barbarism, American Jews at the grassroots, joined by some concerned non-Jews, mobilized in massive street demonstrations to protest Nazi anti-Semitism. University administrators failed to participate in the two massive waves of protests and rallies in major U.S. cities in March and May of 1933, or even uh, to promote them on campus. And we have films of this at the Holocaust Museum, and they've made national tours with these films, showing huge numbers of people in the streets in these demonstrations. And I use some of them in the book, in the first chapter. Typical of the massive mobilization of ordinary citizens of the grassroots against Nazism was the May 10th, 1933 march of 100,000 people in New York City. The marchers included uniformed World War veterans, members of Zionist organizations, a labor contingent numbering in the thousands, and I'm quoting from the newspapers here, scores of rabbis in long black robes, bearded denizens of the Lower East Side, and representatives of the literary, artistic, and theatrical worlds. Many carried placards that read, Hitler, this is not the period of the Dark Ages. The Undertaker's Union marched with, I think, the best sign, my favorite sign in this demonstration, which was, we want Hitler. <laughs> During 1933, Jewish organizations initiated a boycott of German goods and services. In fact, this is generated from the grassroots, the first Jewish organization to set up the boycott is the Jewish war veterans of the United States. Uh, the the uh, more uh, established Jewish organizations are a little bit slower to uh, get involved with it, but they all fall into line by the fall of 1933, uh, except for the AJ committee. Uh, everyone else is behind the boycott. Uh, it is uh, fully endorsed by the American Federation of Labor 
in the fall of 1933 as well. Uh, the top AFL officials, Green <coughs> and Matthew Wall, fully back the boycott of German goods. But American university leaders did not join in. Columbia's Nicholas Murray Butler and Robert Maynard Hutchins of the University of Chicago several times sailed across the Atlantic on German ships flying the swastika flag. Uh, up through 1937, this is going on. American University presidents, uh, let me know incidentally if you can't hear me in the back. I don't know how well I'm projecting without a microphone. Okay so far? All right, just raise your hand if I can't be heard. All right. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, I check shipping lists uh, in the American newspapers for the whole 1930s, and you see the names of the American University presidents repeatedly, uh, people like uh, Butler, uh, who saw himself as a kind of international statesman going across the Atlantic. There's the swastikas flying on these ships. And of course, uh, uh, anti-Nazi German uh, uh, refugees uh, coming to the United States in 33 and 34 are warning Americans not to go on, on German ships. This is putting uh, much needed currency into the Nazis' hands. Uh, during late 1933 and early 1934, some of the West's Journalists in the West best informed about German affairs, warned about the very real possibility of large-scale genocide of the Jews in Germany. In November 1933, Pierre von Passen, for example, uh, drawing on interviews with Jews that he had conducted in three widely separated German cities, wrote, that, "Quote: The portion of the German Jews is getting the position of the German Jews is getting worse every day." And he called for international action to save the German Jewish community from what he called physical extinction. He endorsed Rabbi Stephen Wise's call for the settling of 150,000 Jews in Palestine. But von Passen warned that unless such a plan were carried out at once, and he's writing in November 1933, quote, there will be no 150,000 German Jews left to be settled in Palestine. The very next month, in December 1933, the president of Columbia University, Nicholas Murray Butler, I think the most well-known university president in this country during the 1930s, warmly welcomed the campus, Nazi Germany's ambassador to the United States, Dr. Hans Luther. President Butler dismissed criticisms of the invitation, praising the Nazi ambassador as, quote, a gentleman, honest and well-mannered, and as the diplomatic representative of a friendly people, in Butler's words, he said Luther was entitled to, quote, the greatest courtesy and respect. He was not concerned that the Nazis had recently burned the books of one of Columbia's most distinguished professors, Franz Boas, uh, 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 the great anthropologist. Uh, the day of Luther's speech, Columbia student newspaper, The Specter, which had an almost entire Jewish editorial board, published an editorial uh, uh, entitled Silence Gives Consent, Dr. Butler, that bitterly denounced Butler's failure to criticize the Nazis. Calling attention to the Nazis' destruction of democracy and his persecu their persecution of Jews and book burning, the spectator declared, quote, this is the government which President Butler, by his silence, has given the impression that he condones. Believing that Jerome Klein, a popular and talented fine arts instructor, had been the leader in circulating a petition denouncing the administration's bringing Luther to campus, President Butler terminated his appointment, permanently destroying a very prominent academic career. And uh, Klein was never able to find his way back into academia. A year after Luther's visit, a Columbia student group invited anti-Nazi refugee Gerhard Zeger, a 
former Social Democratic Reichstag deputy, to speak on campus. The student group asked President Butler to join Zager on the podium and present his views on Nazism. Zager had escaped from the Oranienburg concentration camp in December 1933, after six months in prison. This is one of the first people who have actually been in a concentration camp that's coming to the United States to describe conditions in these camps, which the Nazi government is, te is uh, telling Americans uh, are, are uh, uh, camps where the, the conditions, uh, uh, one of the leading propagandists in this country made a, a campus tour, said they're like college dormitories, the buildings there. It's pretty much like a campus setting. Uh, uh, Zager had been in the Reichstag for many years uh, and had been in Orionienburg. Uh, uh, is speaking at Columbia in 1934, although President Butler could have used this opportunity to publicly proclaim his opposition to Nazism and to show his support for a courageous adversary of Hitler, he declined to appear at the presentation, which was chaired by Reinhold Niebuhr. An audience of 300 heard Zeger declare that sadism and cruelty beyond anyone's expectation prevailed in Germany's concentration camps, and Zeger repeatedly urged Americans to boycott Germany. At Harvard, President uh, Conant's administration provided a very friendly reception for one of the top Nazi party officials, Ernst Homstadt, who was Hitler's foreign press secretary. When he arrived at Harvard in June 1934 to attend his 25th anniversary reunion, he was a member of the Harvard class in uh, 1909. Hitler had taken refuge at Homstadt's villa after the Munich uh, Beer Hall Putsch. Hamstangel claimed to have introduced the Nazis' stiff-armed salute and Sieg Heil chant, modeling them on a gesture and a shout he had used as a cheerleader at Harvard when he was a student. A fanatical anti-Semite, Hamstangel had in April 1933 told American diplomat James McDonald, quote, that the Jews must be crushed. They were, quote, the vampires sucking German blood. Donald wrote in his diary that Hofstangel, quote, then launched into a terrifying account of Nazi claims. The April 1st boycott was only the beginning. Noting that Germany had taken over a million and a half war prisoners during the World War, Hofstangel declared that, quote, 600,000 Jews would be easy. The Nazis would assign a stormtrooper to each Jew, and, quote, in a single night it could be finished. McDonald was not certain whether this meant that the Nazis planned to imprison Germany's entire Jewish population or whether this meant it's, quote, wholesale slaughter. Shortly before Hamstangel arrived for the reunion, the Harvard student newspaper, The Crimson, urged the administration to award Hamstangel an honorary degree and mark of honor, the Crimson declared, appropriate to his high position in the government of a friendly country. Boston's newspapers repeatedly emphasized how fond his Harvard classmates were of Homstein, fraternizing with the Nazi leader at the reunion where many of the nation's leading financiers, industrialists, educators, corporate attorneys, uh, scientists, uh, and physicians. And you see their pictures on the front page of the Boston newspaper. At the class of 1909 party at the Harvard Union, Homstangel recalled for his classmates the, quote, many long nights that he and Hitler had spent at his villa talking of, quote, the day, and excitedly exclaimed to his rap Harvard listeners, now the day is here. <coughs> Reporters noted that all through dinner, Homstangel was besieged by autograph seekers. 
As the Nazi leader partied with his classmates, Harvard police tore down <coughs> the Nazi stickers protest testers had posted in Harvard Yard that suggested Harvard award uh, Hanstangle uh, another honorary degree, Dr. Pogroms. The joyous festivities were briefly interrupted when Rabbi Joseph Schubau confronted Ham Stangl as he spoke with reporters in Harvard Yard. Rabbi Schubau demanded to know the meaning of a remark Ham Stangl had recently made to the press that, quote, everything would soon be settled for the Jews in Germany. Trembling violently, Rabbi Schubau cried out, my people want to know, does it mean extermination? But Harvard police immediately intervened and ushered Hofstangle off to President Conan's home for tea. During the commencement, a mass demonstration was staged in Harvard Square against the university's warm welcome for Hofstangle. Police arrested seven demonstrators, and the whole, whole of Harvard Square was covered with protesters. And I heard from the children of some of them uh, as I conducted my research. Seven demonstrators were arrested one after the other. As each got up to speak, uh, police arrested uh, the person. Uh, they were sentenced to six months imprisonment and hard labor. Uh, it had originally been 30 days, and the, the judge jacked it up when they appealed to six months to teach them a lesson of hard labor. Uh, President Conan refused to intervene. He intervened on, two, on behalf of two young women who had chained themselves to a fence in Harvard Yard and been arrested because it would be embarrassing. That was university property, and it would be embarrassing uh, not to do that. But it, since Harvard Square was, was outside the campus, uh, that he washed his hands of that, and he, he referred to those protesters as ridiculous. I have a letter from the wife of one of them, who's a recent MIT graduate, said that she couldn't even communicate with her husband. She was allowed one uh, half hour every, uh, uh, every couple weeks. Uh, uh, the letter writing was severely restricted, and she begged him to try to intervene and do something, and he refused. Uh, upon Hofstangl's triumphant return to Germany, Hitler bestowed on him the honor of opening the Nazi Party's Congress at Nuremberg. In September 1934, the month of the Nuremberg Congress, Roscoe Pound, the dean of Harvard Law School, personally accepted an honorary degree at the law school from Nazi Germany's ambassador, Hans Luther. The University of, uh, this is a degree from the University of Berlin, which had been the site of a major book burning. Other Nazi officials attended the ceremony. Dean Pound was sympathetic to Hitler, had vacationed in the Third Reich, would vacation in, in, in 34, 36, and 1937. While in Bavaria, he attended the uh, virulently anti-Semitic passion play at Oberammergau and pronounced it wonderful. When Felix Frankfurter, then a Harvard law professor and later U.S. Supreme Court Justice, learned that Ambassador Luther was to present Dean Pan with the honorary degree from the University of Berlin at the law school, he protested to President Conan that Harvard was, quote, tying its tail to the Nazi kite, that is, lending its prestige to the Hitler regime. Frankfurter did not want the ceremony held at Harvard and did not want President Conant to attend it. Conant replied to Frankfurter that he would attend. He did not want to insult what he called the friendly government. Frankfurter was deeply disgusted, noting that President Conant had allowed the law school building to be, turned, to be turned into what he called a Nazi holiday. When Dean Pound had the audacity to invite Frankfurter to the ceremony, 
Frankfurter replied, quote, I cannot depend any function in honor of a representative of the government which Mr. Justice Holmes has accurately characterized as a challenge to civilization. Unquote. He declared that he could, quote, could not, quote, suppress my sense of humiliation that my beloved law school, the center of Anglo-American law, should confer special distinction upon an official representative of the throne lawlessness. In March 1935, the Harvard administration permitted the Nazi consul general in Boston to lay a wreath bearing the swastika in the Harvard Chapel to honor Harvard men killed fighting for Germany in the World War. The press at the time interpreted this, along with a warm welcome Harvard had extended to Hamstangel as Harvard's recognition of the Hitler regime. Determined to forge strong ties with the Third Reich's universities, despite their Nazification, over 20 American colleges and universities, including Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Cornell, and Vassar, sent delegates to Nazi Germany in 1936 to celebrate the University of Heidelberg's 550th anniversary. No British university would send a delegate. This is a well-orchestrated Nazi propaganda festival uh, that uh, Joseph Goebbels uh, had charge of. It was scheduled, uh, and American newspapers noted this right away, to culminate on June 30th, which was a very important uh, day on the Nazi calendar, the day of the Night of the Long Knives. The press expected most top Nazi leaders to be present. Many Jews and concerned non-Jews, along with the Columbia Spectator, warned America's universities that the Nazis would claim that uh, the presence of American university delegates at the festival demonstrated American academia's approval of the Nazi regime. The Spectator's editor-in-chief, and this is a case like where people who are 21 years old seem to know a lot more about what's going on than <coughs> people running the universities. Uh, he declared, the idea of a representative of Columbia University seating himself on the same platform with the monstrous Joseph Goebbels, who would officially greet delegates, is utterly obscene. At Columbia, 1,000 students and faculty members signed a petition protesting the administration sending a delegation to Heidelberg, including Franz Boas. But the protests were to no avail. The presidents of Harvard, Yale, and Columbia planned together how to deflect criticism of their decision to send delegates and friendly greetings. President Conant declared that, quote, the ancient ties by which the universities of the world are united are independent of political considerations, unquote. Now, Alvin Johnson, who was the founder of the New School for Social Research, which is the only American institution of higher learning that welcomed anti-Nazi refugees, um, branded Harvard's idea of an international community of scholars that included Nazi Germany to be a dangerous delusion. He emphasized uh, that there no longer was such a thing as a free German university. An angry President Butler of Columbia reacted very harshly to the student protests. He expelled from the university Robert Burke, leader of a group of students which staged a mock book burning on the campus, the protest descending by Columbia the delegate to Heidelberg. Burke had then led the students in a peaceful uh, picket line at President Butler's mansion. President Butler was uncomfortable with Robert Burke, who was a passionate anti-fascist who was working his way through Columbia. In fact, he worked for two years as a truck driver and a year in a steel mill to get his tuition money to go to Columbia, and then he was working his way through Columbia. It's not the type of student Butler wanted uh, really attending Columbia. He wasn't comfortable with this sort of student. Uh, uh, 
and uh, Butler uh, expelled him and permanently destroyed his academic career. Uh, Burke wouldn't compromise with Butler, uh, wouldn't apologize. He, he stood on his anti-Nazi stand. And the result of this, and he full knew this is what the administration was going to do to him, he was basically blacklisted at every university in the United States and, and could never gain admission. It never did. Uh, one of the great, great heroes of the 1930s. Uh, Butler was not comfortable with Burke, but he was very comfortable with Nazi ambassador Hans Luther, a man that, that he honored as a gentleman. And, uh, uh, was pleased to welcome him to the campus to give a Nazi propaganda speech. That's a, the one Luther delivered there. Uh, to this day, by the way, the president of Columbia, Lee Bollinger, absolutely refuses to acknowledge that Columbia did anything wrong to Burke or to Jerome Klein, whose academic careers were permanently destroyed. I, I had a, a letter in the Chronicle of Higher Education about this. The David Wyman Institute invited Bollinger to respond to a paper I gave on Columbia's involvement with the Nazis in the 1930s uh, in New York. Uh, you know, not too, you know, he could have gotten there in 10 minutes. They kept the chair open for him on the podium. Uh, Bollinger claimed he had never received, uh, the director of the institute sent them uh, an invitation by mail, by fax, and by email. And Bollinger claimed never to have received the invitation. Uh, and this is a disgrace. But he absolutely refuses to do anything for these two men, which tells you something about the character of people running universities today in this country. It should be re always remembered that the German universities propagated Nazi racial ideology and assisted the Hitler regime in developing anti-Semitic uh, legislation. Law faculty helped draw up the Nuremberg Laws. Uh, uh, biology professors, anthropologists propagated Nazi racial <coughs> doctrine. Uh, Heidelberg taught a course on, or had a whole program on what it called Aryan physics, which is supposed to be a slap at Albert Einstein, who's one of the most detested. We should never forget uh, what the great Jewish scholar Max Weinreich said in 1946. And this is a man who was partially blinded in a pogrom, but he was a great, great uh, scholar of Jewish studies and Yiddish, who said, German scholars from the beginning to the end of the Hitler era worked hand in glove with the murderers of the Jewish people. Harvard invited representatives of Germany's Nazified universities to participate in its tercentenary celebration held in September 1936. It announced it would award honorary degrees to 10 academics from the Third Reich. These included Werner Heisenberg, who during World War II was in charge of Hitler's atomic bomb program. Harvard scheduled the tercentenary exercises for Rosh Hashanah. Despite protests, and the, the, the protests began developing over a year before the tercentenary, and came not from the Jewish community, but even from the Cambridge City Council. Harvard could care less about this. When Dr. Charles Singer of the University of London, an eminent medical historian, wrote to President Conant to express strong opposition to Harvard sending a delegate to Heidelberg, Conant replied that the logic of Singer's position would require Harvard to ban from its tercentenary events, quote, German scientists who have embraced Nazi policy, but nevertheless, remain distinguished members of the world of scholars." Conant pronounced such a view absurd. Indeed, from the time Hitler assumed power in 1933 until the outbreak of World War II, American universities enthusiastically participated in student exchanges with the Third Reich. The Seven Sisters Women's College has spearheaded these exchanges. 
This is partly because the Seven Sisters believed that uh, time spent abroad in Europe would be good uh, to, to impart a kind of polish to their students, and also because they gave more emphasis to foreign language instruction than other schools. The Seven Sisters were central to the junior year abroad program that was maintained with the University of Munich uh, through the 1930s up until uh, World War II begins. Many of the, the uh, Seven Sisters students also studied in summer programs at the universities of Berlin and Heidelberg. And the Seven Sisters colleges sponsored excursions to the Omar Amagal uh, Passion Play. That was like a regular feature of you know, what the, the students' uh, college experience should involve. Go to Omar Amagal uh, under the direction of Seven Sisters faculty members. They led the students there. Remember, the Nazis put on special tercentenary. It wasn't supposed to be performed until 1940, but they had special tercentenary performances of the Passion Play in 1934. Hitler personally met with the cast on stage and strongly endorsed the play, proclaiming that never has the menace of jewelry been so convincingly portrayed. Um, and it was striking that American soldiers, uh, having defeated Nazi Germany in World War II, arrested Jesus Christ, Mary, Hated the apostles. You know, they had, yeah, the people who performed those roles in the play were all Nazis and were, were placed under arrest by American troops. The Seven Sisters' determination to forge friendly ties with Nazified universities in Germany is striking because, after all, if you know anything about Nazi women's policy, you know that they sharply restricted the enrollment of women in the German universities by imposing a 10% quota. Uh, and the, they defined women's central role as that of mother and homemaker and promoted the five-child family as a norm. My grandmother was a very close friend of Tony Sender, who was one of the first exiles to come to the United States from Nazi Germany, a Jewish woman who served 13 years in, in the Reichstag from 1920 to 33. She went on WEBD in 1935 and blasted Nazi women's policy, talking about the enslavement of the German woman, that the German woman was being uh, not only cast out of the universities and totally out of the professions, but, but was being uh, uh, thrown out of even factory work, that these women were being re uh, reduced to, to try to scrape out a living as domestic servants and as prostitutes. Uh, uh, Erica Mont, Thomas Mont's daughter, uh, went around saying the same type of thing on, American, on some American campuses. So it was well known what was going on, but the Seven Sisters are going to get into bed with the Hitler regime and, and send their students uh, in large numbers, repeatedly across the Atlantic to study at these institutions. Uh, and a, a very large proportion of these students wrote back glowing accounts of the greatness of the Third Reich, publishing them in pamphlets. Uh, look at campus newspapers of this period. They're full of uh, praise for Hitler and the Third Reich. A Mount Holyoke student, writing from Nazi Germany in 1938, declared that any account by a junior here is bound to turn into a testimonial. Four Vassar students published a lengthy feature in the Vassar Review, explaining how living in the Third Reich had led them to dismiss American press reports of militarism, terrorism, and bloodshed there, and to truly appreciate what Hitler had accomplished. Uh, one of them praised Hitler for establishing what she called religious unity in Germany. She concluded her presentation by declaring, Hitler is not militaristic. He has sincerely spoken for peace. Another Vassar senior, having been at the University of Munich as a junior, declared her admiration for Nazi students and their determination to clean up uh, Germany. She even defended the book burnings as solemn symbolic ceremonies. 
In an article published in several Jewish newspapers in 1936, the anti-Nazi uh, refugee Leonhard Bergel, whose whole career was also, the academic career was also terminated at New Jersey College for Women in 1935 by his uh, Nazi uh, department chair. German departments are controlled in many, many cases by uh, outright Nazis. And Bergel was terminated in 1935 uh, and was out of academia for a couple of years uh, because he was an anti yeah, that was one of the major reasons why uh, he was terminated. Uh, there was a long discussion of that in the book. Uh, he said that arriving in Germany at an impressionable age, the American student came into contact with, uh, with Nazis almost exclusively. The student's own college German department, usually staffed by pro-Nazi German nationals, arranged for her to reside with a pro-Nazi pro German family, where she heard the official Nazi doctrines explained in the classroom. No wonder Berkel said that she writes letters to the college paper during her stay full of praise for the Nazis. Uh, the German exchange students who came here were uh, told to uh, operate as political soldiers in the Reich. Uh, they were screened to be, make sure they were uh, strong uh, supporters of Nazism. Uh, Barnard College's German exchange student for 1937-38 explained in the Barnard Bulletin that Jewish blood was different from German blood and Jews, therefore, could only be guests in Germany. She explained anti-Jewish discrimination was justified because Jews had acquired too much control over money. Now, Holyoke's International Relations Club hosted a lecture by another German exchange student who denounced what she called, quote, propaganda spread about Jewish persecutions in the Third Reich. And the Seven Sisters Colleges set up all these uh, different social events to promote uh, friendship between the U.S. and Nazi Germany. Wellesley, for example, arranged a dance and reception for the naval cadets from the German uh, warship Karlsruhe, which sailed into Boston Harbor flying the swastika flag in uh, 1934. Uh, the cadets were invited to Wellesley uh, for a dance and reception. Uh, Wellesley ignored the Boston Jewish community's vehement protests. Uh, Boston Rabbi Samuel Abrams denounced the Karlsruhe as an instrument of hate and darkness, but by contrast, the Wellesley College News portrayed the cadets as very appealing young blonde men, immaculate in their uniforms, friendly, soft, and sincere. Soon after the cadets' arrival, the floor was filled with dancing couples, and the paper reported that everyone enjoyed the punch and cookies. Major university administrations remained indifferent when the American press reported in April 1938 after the Anschluss that the Nazis planned to burn German and uh, so-called non-Aryan books in the Austrian National Library. Uh, uh, from the grassroots, uh, a small group of college students at a few universities uh, raised, a, set up a campaign to try to buy the books back, uh, to buy the books from uh, Germany and have them shipped to the United States. And then borough president of Brooklyn, uh, Raymond Ingersoll, uh, uh, sent a cable to the Nazis uh, offering to, have the, to pay the, for the transport of the books uh, so they could be placed in the Brooklyn Public Library. But administrators of Widener Library at Harvard and, and at Yale uh, would, would have nothing to do with this. Uh, the Widener uh, officials said that they really couldn't they use any books in the National Library. At Yale, uh, Professor Andrew Keogh, head of Sterling Library, uh, emphatically declared, quote, under no circumstances would the Yale Library buy non-Aryan books from the Vienna collection. 
Keown asked, I must stay clear of politics. He claimed that Yale's purchasing literature banned by the Nazis constituted, quote, a political violation because the Hitler regime had it prohibited exporting the books. Professor Keogh insisted anyway, quote, European bonfires are never so serious as the newspapers would make them, and suggested they merely resulted from students letting off steam. All right, to conclude, let me say that the Kristallnacht pogroms of November 1938 uh, uh, is the first occasion where you see some elite university president speaking out against the Hitler regime uh, uh, and the persecution of the Jews by the Nazis. But even then, the, the response is very, very tepid compared with what you get at the grassroots. The presidents restricted themselves to condemning what they termed German horrors. By contrast, in New York City, 30,000 merchants shut their grocery stores, butcher shops, bakeries, drugstores, and other retail establishments in a coordinated one-hour protest against Nazi anti-Semitic persecution in Germany. What protest uh, developed on campus was student-initiated and largely confined to, enroll, to raising uh, money to pay expenses to enroll a very small number of refugee students. When administrations agreed to stu student proposals to raise money for refugee students, they would only waive tuition. They made the students uh, raise the money, uh, or, or the Jewish community to raise the money for uh, uh, boarding, lodging, uh, transport, and anything else that was involved. And they also required that a very significant proportion of the refugee students not be Jewish. That was emphatically insisted on. It's often 50% have to be non-Jewish. There's strong alumni pressure. Uh, also on the administration to make sure that not too many Jews are given these scholarships. Uh, never did the university presidents do what people at the grassroots were demanding, cut off diplomatic relations entirely with Germany, uh, stiffen the boycott against uh, German goods, uh, uh, relax immigration quotas to allow Jewish refugees to come to the United States. Reporting, and this is how I'll conclude, Reporting on the wave of violent attacks on Jews that broke out in Berlin, quote, anti-Semitism in its worst form is in the saddle in Germany, and quote, there is nothing, save some echo of world opinion, to exercise at least check upon it, unquote. Edward R. Murrow, later the great CBS broadcaster, accurately described the reaction of America's educational elite at this critical time. And he said, the thing that really concerns me, he says this in 1934, is the general indifference of the university world and the smug complacency in the face of what has happened to Germany. So I would say it's truly shameful that America's college and university leaders, who were in a position to influence America's public opinion, remained indifferent to Germany's terrorist campaign against the Jews, and instead, on numerous occasions, assisted the Nazis in their efforts to gain acceptance in the West. And um, I don't want to deflect from your topic, but I have to say that, uh, in a sense, ESO was created in 2006 in part to ring alarm bells. And I, I have to say, without going into detail, reflecting from your subject, that the, um, the parallels are striking. And, uh, there's a, a rise, there's a social movement which is using anti-Semitism, which is reminiscent of this period. And it seems that the universities are, are silent. And they're not engaging the social movement. Uh, last Friday, Kaldari, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, led Friday services to, some reports are saying 2 million people were there. The Muslim Brotherhood blocked um, 
uprisings against the Mubarak regime for being on the platform. Kaudari spoke about a march to Jerusalem. Um, and this is during the same week when uh, James, James Clapper was saying that the Muslim Brotherhood is uh, a secular organization that's given up violence. Several days later, when he testified again, he was asked whether the Brotherhood is an organization that is radical or an organization that has radicals in it. And he said that it's an organization that has radicals in it, that it's not necessarily a radical organization. And now this becomes context for discussion and for debate. And I'm choosing my words very carefully as a scholar, but this is a social movement that is using genocidal anti-Semitism to deflect from the, uh, from, the, from the issues, if you will. And uh, it's terrifying. And, and actually, Kaudari in 2009 was um, praising Hitler and saying that God willing, that from his wheelchair, he'll see the day when he can continue Hitler's work. Uh, it's just straightforward. And, we ring the alarm bells in Nisa, and uh, not everybody's very pleased when we ring the alarm bells, to say the least. And it seems that you know things are progressing rapidly in 2011. So going back to, to 1930s, uh, thank you for your presentation. And are there any comments? Um, I remember coming to uh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I could tell you, for example, give you some examples of this. I, the question is that American universities today, uh, and, and she mentioned uh, elite universities like Harvard, Yale, Columbia, are they dealing with their Nazi past today? And the answer is absolutely no, they're not dealing with it. I can give, when I started uh, presenting my work on this subject in 2004, uh, the David S. Wyman Institute for Holocaust Studies asked me to give the keynote address at a conference that it wanted to set up, uh, hopefully at Harvard, um, that would deal with Harvard's involvement with Nazi Germany in the 1930s. And they asked, the institute asked me to uh, write up a summary of the paper I would deliver, which is, you know, an expanded version, appears as chapter two in the book. Uh, to present. I sent Larry Summers, then president of Harvard, uh, a fairly lengthy summary of what I was going to say, laying out all the major points so he knew exactly what I would say. Uh, the Institute didn't hear from him until September when he responded by saying that not only uh, would he not allow such a conference to be held at Harvard, but that nobody from the Harvard administration would attend any such conference. Uh, at that point, uh, Professor Stephen Katz is one of the world's leading Holocaust historians and director of the Elie Wiesel Center at Boston University invited us to have a conference there on that campus. And David Wyman and uh, Professor Katz uh, served as respondents to my paper. But that gives you that uh, Lee Bollinger refused to participate in a forum uh, in New York on Columbia's involvement with Nazis. And uh, not only that, they went beyond this to make uh, nasty remarks uh, in the press about Boston Globe uh, ran two major articles about Harvard's refusal to get involved and about what I said, and quoting David Wyman also at that time. Uh, so uh, not only that, they seem to have learned no lessons whatsoever. John Coatsworth, who was uh, a leading administrator at Columbia when uh, Columbia brought in Akhman Dinejad to speak uh, and present uh, you know, his whitewash of uh, 
Iranian bar president to Colombia, uh, was asked whether he would uh, have invited uh, Hitler to the campus, and his answer was yes. Uh, well, it was prior to 1939, so some inane statement like that. So, uh, uh, no, they, they're not interested in listening to this, and the, the, the subject of anti-Semitism is not fashionable on American campuses, and there's all kinds of uh, uh, efforts by people in charge to distance themselves from discussing that subject. You know, to them it doesn't exist and, and, and they're not coming I mean, to talk about something like this. And, and to them it gives some legitimacy to the subject. Yeah, I've got uh, two questions. First of all, I want to say thank you for the rich and the description of the collaboration between American universities and German universities. Um, on an analytical level, what do you think uh, might be the reasons and causes for this uh, behavior uh, regarding the past ban of and uh, 39, I guess? That would lead to my second question. You were mentioning Kristallnacht as a possible turning point to reconsider the relationships uh, to Nazi universities. And obviously that didn't happen, but when did it happen? When was the turning point? With the uh, beginning of World War II? Well, yeah, well, with, with uh, up until the outbreak of European war okay. in, uh, with the invasion of Poland in September 1939, it becomes uh, important. The Seven Sisters are about to send students across the Atlantic for more study in Nazi Germany, and uh, all of a sudden war breaks out, and uh, they're afraid the parents are going to be concerned for their daughter's safety, so they regretfully have to uh, stop wife. Uh, regretfully, they would have liked, uh, I think, you know, to, to continue, but it was just a, a safety issue. Um, but there, uh, it's really these, these outside factors, you know, uh, Europe is being torn apart by war, and it's just too dangerous. And um, the, the first the part of the about the reasons that more analytical level of Motives are first of all, let's start with number one, which is anti-Semitism, which pervades the American universities in the 1930s. These are universities that maintain very strict Jewish quotas, restricting their enrollment, and also uh, are restricting the hiring of Jewish professors all the way through this period. There are whole fields that are off limits to Jews in the 1930s. English literature, for example, is believed that unless you were of Anglo-Saxon background, you couldn't properly understand English literature. History. Uh, is another example where there are very, very few Jews, even sociology, chemistry. Uh, I mean, there, there are these arguments, uh, uh, they try to pass the blame. Well, we don't have give any scholarships at Harvard, say, to, to uh, uh, Jewish students in chemistry, because what, what would they do anyway? Degree, you couldn't get a job in chemistry if you were Jewish. I mean, there was no employment available for Jews in these fields. Okay, so that's one of the major factors. And, and there's also the issue that the presence of the universities uh, were very comfortable with the elite, which tended to be very anti-Semitic in this period, and very uncomfortable with social protest, with, with uh, uh, pro-labor uh, uh, students. And uh, here is a, a regime that has crushed the trade unions and, and seems to have the support of the upper class. People like Nicholas Murray Butler are very comfortable with that element. Uh, you know, Robert Burke, in his view, was uh, an undesirable. He wanted him out. Uh, and 
went on to, to become a labor organizer. You know, and, uh, uh, was very, very committed to uh, denouncing Nazism. Uh, a guy like uh, Hans Luther, uh, he sees as, you know, um, someone like uh, the people who serve on the board of trustees. You know, a, a wealthy uh, man. Uh, we want to understand were good manners. I mean, so I don't know how he, he would see that, but. Uh, if you're upper class, you're the right kind of person. So I uh, think combination of those okay. things. So were there any positive examples like? Um, well, the New School for Social Research, which is okay, a very large okay, organization. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So just ask you a question. Ahmadinejad actually gave a seminar at Yale in the fall. Mm -hmm. Could you comment on in your research from the past during the leading up to the Second World War and the Shoah to the contemporary context of university intellectual discourse and discussion vis-a-vis -vis issues of anti-Semitism, demonization, if you will, of say, Israel. Is there any correlation or connection? Yeah, there's you? a strong correlation, quite clearly. And I think the Ahmadinejad uh, visit is a good example uh, that you learn nothing from the past. Uh, they invited Hans Luther to the Columbia campus in December 1933, uh, you know, to, to where he gives a speech on how Germany is the most peaceful European nation and there's no anti-Semitic persecution and so on. And you invite Ahmadinejad, uh, in, in many ways, this, the, the, I mean, this is just as unbelievable, uh, uh, decades and decades and decades after the Holocaust, uh, uh, to bring in a Holocaust denial, for an institution of higher learning, to bring in a Holocaust denial. I mean, this is a great example for students uh, I mean, to, to, this is something that, that, that I mean should be dismi dismissed as, as a complete idiocy. Um, uh, he presents a speech very similar to Luther's at Columbia, uh, which uh, uh, claims that his country is unfairly maligned in the Western press, uh, which uh, claims that they're setting a great example opposing Western decadence. Sounds exactly like Hitler. Um, that denies that Jews are mistreated uh, and projects all kinds of conspiratorial uh, fantasies. I mean, so the, the, one of the striking things is that, that uh, these people have learned nothing from the past. And the other thing is that we do face the prospect of another Holocaust. Many of us may live to see another Holocaust. We may live to see the state in which we were wiped off the map. Uh, it certainly is a possibility. It can happen. And uh, we're universities are welcoming uh, leaders uh, who would love to do something like that. Yeah, first, just a comment and then a question. The comment is that when I, um, one of my first memories of arriving at Harvard was in Memorial Hall, where they list the people who died. And then they have some with an asterisk that says, enemy side for World War I and World War II. Now, I guess from World War I, I understand stand it a little bit more, but it, it always struck me that they were kind of saying that the Harvard identity was more central than their American identity or their moral identity right. by, by listing it that way. And it, um, it, it was kind of annoying that's while I was there for registration the first day to get that message from them. And they um, refused to, to change that, by the way. The Harvard Crimson interviewed me recently about that interview, Daniel Goldog and, uh, and a couple other people whether Harvard should maintain this, this uh, uh, <coughs> uh, name of the uh, uh, soldier uh, killed uh, fighting the German army in World War II on the plaque honoring Harvard men. 
The other yeah, question is, if, if it's really irrelevant, why would the won't take it down. <laughs> It really doesn't matter to me. the asterisk in there. But in, in any case, um, the, the next issue is that I was wondering if you gave any thought to the way that um, Nazism is being processed by historians more, more recently, I mean, that the, the lesson of anti-Semitism being a central aspect of the Holocaust, um, being kind of de-emphasized and removed as we get further and further away from the event. And that now that um, even in Holocaust education programs, it seems to me when they go into the schools and they teach kids about the Holocaust, that they say it happened to the Jews, but very quickly they try to get them to draw almost any moral lesson they want from the Holocaust, except that, um, that it somehow was an outgrowth of, of a historical anti-Semitic movement, among other things. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's, 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 it's certainly being downplayed in Holocaust education. I think there's this tendency to universalize the Holocaust and to say that any kind of oppression uh, is uh, equal to any other kind. I mean, the, the kid who interviewed me for the Harvard Crimson threw out at me these questions about, well, isn't uh, on, quote, American, quote, atrocities of World War II, what would I think about comparing that with what the Nazis did? I mean, what are you talking about? Said, yeah, well, uh, okay, in the Pacific War. Mentioned uh, the dropping of the atomic bombs and uh, uh, other so-called atrocities that he, he, he was unable to specify. But uh, unfortunately, look, I went all the way through school without having the Holocaust taught at all. Uh, I learned about it through the Eichmann trial in 1961, reading the paper. I learned about it through talking to older people who had uh, survived that period. That's how I learned. I didn't get it from schools or from teachers. They just didn't want the subject told. Man, I, you know, I don't think it's it's uh, being properly taught now, and uh, uh, universities uh, are, are delinquent. You're quite right. Anti-Semitism is, is just uh, uh, not seen as a legitimate subject by by you know, large numbers of influential people in academia. Well, I was recently taught in class that the German professor Bernard the first to go along with the uh, policies of Hitler, and especially the Nuremberg Wars, which eliminated the professors from the German universities. Uh, the reason for this being that uh, it was uh, to reduce the competition, and some of the best brains at the universities uh, were not given professorships and had to leave, and therefore they personally profited from this. Now, in the United States, at the same time, there was a very strong anti-Semitism but could this also have been part of the reason that the administration and the uh, professors in the United States all uh, look so fondly upon the Nazi uh, regime? And that, but they didn't, that they were so fond of the Nazi regime, plus the fact that they didn't uh, allow Jews into the schools or professors other than Princeton. Well, it was because the American university system was highly anti-Semitic as well and very restrictive. Yeah, I mean, that, that obviously, uh, given how pervasive anti-Semitism was in American universities, uh, there wouldn't uh, be some sympathy with the German policies. There's no question. I mean, the, the prominent uh, people like Dean, uh, Dean of Barnard College, uh, Virginia Gildersleeve, uh, uh, was quoted in the press as saying, and she uh, returned from her annual European sojourn to, to say, uh, there's no big deal about what's going on in the German universities. Uh, she was pleased to see that a certain number of women, and uh, you know, there are Jews still there in, in uh, attending these universities, and uh, 
this is a woman who had severely restricted uh, the admission of Jews into Barnard. Uh, so naturally, she would uh, feel comfortable with people who were doing something, something similar. Uh, yeah. Well, my point is also, wasn't this being done on the same, on, they were doing the same thing in the American universities. Uh, that's why the new school had to be started, and that's uh, the only exception would yeah. probably be It's not as brutal, but yes, I mean, there's a, there's a similar kind of pattern of discrimination. I mean, they're, they're not going into lecture halls and beating up the professors or physically threatening them or, or severely injuring them. Uh, that's a difference in the United States, but, it, but there is a pervasive anti-Semitism and restriction of opportunities all the way through the Holocaust, that doesn't change. The Holocaust is going on, they don't change these policies. Did you try to make any comparison between the attitudes towards Nazism of the academic leadership with the political leadership in this country? Was there any similarity? If you did, if there was any similarity, or it would be a different one from the other? Look, there's a, there's a lot of anti-Semitism among no, I'm talking politicians. about political leadership and academic leadership. I'm talking about not the country. No, no, political leadership. Sure, you can go on the floor of the United States Congress into World War II and hear vile anti-Semitic statements made on the floor of uh, so the Congress. So academic leadership was not an exception. Well, uh, the American academic leadership is highly important because uh, it has a lot of influence over American public opinion. Um, it, 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 uh, these are the people most conversant with European affairs, probably of anybody in the United States. And uh, there are other sectors in the, well, okay, but there are other sectors. It's not the only sector that is comfortable with, with the regime. I'm not saying, I mean, you're quite right to say there's a, a very significant and often overlooked amount of anti-Semitism in the United States in that period and in powerful places. Yeah, um, I'm interested in stepping back a bit, if I may, in terms of what you were saying. You said um, Holocaust studies are not being taught appropriately. Um, I am a university, but I was a 